G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the review edition from the first week of Finals 4. Dramatic finals played out, some thrillers, um, one or two blowouts, plenty of controversy, but plenty to discuss. The bottom line that eight teams have now become six. Sydney and Essendon bidding farewell to season 20. 21 as their victorious opponents live to fight another day. This podcast always proudly brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember, of course, to gamble responsibly. As I say, very good evening to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. A lot of action, Finey. What would you make of it all? Yeah, a lot of action. Well, Port Adelaide... Not only do they start the uh, finals off with that great win against the Cats, they then get the good news that all things being equal, they'll be hosting a preliminary final in Adelaide at their beloved Adelaide Oval. So they sit back with the week off, smoking the old cob pipe, as they say. And Melbourne, don't they look good things to make a grand final for the first time since 2000? And they'll be hoping to... And I'm sure they will put forward a much better showing than they did against your Bombers that day. And just on that draw, while you uh, seeing you bring it up, uh, the draw for the semi-final weekend next week, Geelong will be playing GWS at Optus Stadium in Perth on Friday evening. Brisbane will be taking on the Western Bulldogs on Saturday. Start time yet to be confirmed, but that, importantly for Brisbane, is at the Gabba. And as you say, Finey, uh, Port Adelaide to host uh, a preliminary final against the winner of the first semi-final at Adelaide Oval. Melbourne taking on the winner of the second semi-final in Perth on the Friday evening. Uh, I'll tell you what you always have certainty with, not just in terms of scheduling, but in terms of produce, finally, and that is the finest hamburger establishment in the known universe. Well, that has already been locked in, hasn't it? We don't need to wait for any draws. We don't need to wait for teams playing each other to find out who's on top of the heap when it comes to burgers. And, of course, we speak of Andrew's Hamburgers, 144, Bridport Street, Albert Park. What a beautiful burger it is. It has been so for heading into its 83rd year. And I'll tell you what, Sunday night, and I could go one right now, speaking of going one, how about going to the top of the street, top of the suburb, best house in the known area? Because when you've got a West Point build, Nick Bartels in the team will make sure that it's a head turner, whether it's a Renault or something from the absolute ground up. You've got the very best with West Point Properties and Nick Bartels and the boys. And remember, too, of course, uh, the best in statistics, another official footyology partner is Stats Insider, the best sports data analyst in the business. 
They work with a range of more than 15 sports across the globe. They sample an event more than 10,000 times to give you the best range of probable and possible outcomes. Uh, you can visit their website at statsinsider.com.au. It's all free to use. Some great independent sports journalism on there as well. In fact, I'll be writing for them tomorrow. So check that one out. Give them a follow on Twitter as well, if you can, at Stats Insider. Well, four big finals to talk about. We're going to do that at length right now. On Footyology, wrap around. The first final of the weekend, the second qualifying final, played on Friday evening at Adelaide Oval. It was between second place Port Adelaide and third place Geelong. And it finished in an emphatic win to the power by 43 points, no less. The final scores, Port Adelaide, 12 goals, 14, 86, defeating the Cats, 5, 13, 43. Two of those five goals to the Cats coming in the final term. Just three goals to three-quarter time. The goal kickers, four to Fantasia, two to Motlop, two to Powell Pepper, singles to Butters, Gray, Laddams and Marshall. For the Cats, only one multiple goal kicker. That was Tom Hawkins. He finished with two singles to Cameron Selwood Simpson. Well... Uh, same game, same result last year, Finey, but uh, this one, wow, it was a lot more substantial than last year's one. Port in charge right from the start of this game, two-goal lead by quarter time. Uh, half time, it was out to five goals, a power-packed second quarter by the power with another four goals. Uh, just one goal kicked in total for the entire third term. That again came to Port, which left Geelong with a six-goal deficit going into the last quarter. Given the way they played, that was never on the cards that they were going to haul that in. And that is pretty much how it played out. Port Adelaide straight through to a preliminary final. Geelong having to do battle next week with GWS just to stay in the finals hunt. Well, a real statement made by uh, Port Adelaide. Uh, they were impressive, weren't they, Farney? They certainly were. Many of their elements of their game were working perfectly. Let's go through them. Small forwards, big kick. Obviously, the headline actor, Razio Fantasia, coming back. He's had an interrupted season. Uh, you could, don't need to give him any opportunities for him to be deadly, and he was four goals. But Robbie Gray... Also a, a real danger. And Motlop. So that's working beautifully. The midfield, well, isn't it interesting, really? You've got the now two teams resting in the preliminary finals with the week off. And you can almost point to their two premium midfielders each, both Port Adelaide and Melbourne, as being responsible for that. Because Boke and Wines are in absolutely A-class form and really almost unbeatable. They're... They were great in the last week of the home and away season to get over the line against the Bulldogs and kept that rating going against the Cats. Uh, the defence is working particularly well, led by this revelation of a footballer, Alir Alir, pop the ball up into his area and you're basically turning it over. So apart from Charlie Dixon and Co being big man power up forward, I think everything else is ticking along 
in premiership style. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I thought the stats were really intriguing for this game because basically Port dominated most categories, disposals, had 60 inside 50s as opposed to Geelong's 45. They won the contested ball. They won handsomely on the outside where they really did make Geelong look a bit slow. They won the uncontested ball by 54. They had 30 more marks, dominated marks inside 50. And uh, even the tackle count inside 50, particularly the tackles inside 50, 12-3 ports way. The two anomalies were the clearances and the centre bounce clearances. Now, Geelong, particularly the centre bounce clearances, they won that 15-3. But that was really a testimony to the level of pressure Port were able to apply because the Cats were winning the clearance and uh, were put under so much heat by Port when they did so that they just turned the ball over and Port were able to attack from half back. I thought that was pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. It just showed uh, the sort of um, mentality towards clearances that have been shown and shown by Richmond during their streak. It carries over to Port Adelaide. You don't have to win the centre clearance to be a dominant team. Can I just ask you how many marks Geelong did take for the game? Uh, 76. Well, there you go. They averaged 105 for the season. And I guess the real worry there is if they're not playing keepings off and maintaining the ball by foot, by chipping it around, have they got a B game? Because they certainly looked as though it didn't work and they didn't have anywhere to turn to, right? No, I think their midfield is uh, a real issue now. I mean, Mitch Duncan hadn't played forever, came back and was... Clearly the best player for the Cats, he ended up with 32 disposals. But the next highest ball winner for them was Paddy Dangerfield and Isaac Smith, each of who had uh, 23. Menegola, 22. You know, they haven't had much out of Parfit for a while. And uh, it really was back to that cliche about the Cats a bit old and a bit slow. We spoke about this on Footyology Final Siren. They are really lacking some spark. And uh, they can't just expect Isaac Smith to deliver that run and, and uh, you know, burst football from the outside. Uh, the likes of Parfit have got to get on board. Quinton Narkel is an interesting one. He's been in pretty ordinary form and thus not uh, playing in this game. But I always think when he plays OK, they are a better side for it. Um, and the elephant in the room, perhaps, Gary Rowan. Boy, his miserable finals record. Uh, just keeps getting worse. He's uh, played in, I think, 14 final. No, sorry, it might be 20 finals now, but more than half of them, he's ended up with single-figure disposal counts, and he was just invisible in the forward line until he was shifted to half-back and started picking up a few cheap touches towards the end. So they've got issues everywhere, the Cats. They certainly do, and, uh, of course, they've been criticised about their inability to stop opposition small forwards and even down their end their own small forwards don't seem to be able to pick up on any loose crumbs that might happen uh, if there is a spillage with Jeremy Cameron and Hawkins going for the ball so that makes them look like a slow team doesn't it I want to focus though on Port Adelaide Georgiades may come back into that side Todd Marshall seems the obvious person to miss out I'll tell you what end of the game, but Powell Pepper came on. He had seven touches and kicked two goals. I guess he would be floating around, though he almost makes the ideal medical sub. 
they're travelling pretty well in terms of personnel heading into the preliminary final with a week off. Yes, and uh, I guess the big issue now, just where that preliminary final will be played. Uh, of course, a lot of water to go under the bridge yet. Two weeks, who knows what could happen the way this pandemic is going. But ideally, Port would be hosting that preliminary final at Adelaide Oval, which will be a significant advantage. Uh, otherwise, I guess it ends up being played in Perth. So a bit of a, a watch this space on that one. Look, uh, Geelong, they've come back from this position before, as recently as last year, in fact, made a grand final after losing a qualifying final. But you just sense it's a harder task this time because unlike last year, when they're in the game, missed some opportunities, they were never really in this game. A lot of soul-searching to be done for the Cats. And uh, they're going to have to do it pretty quickly to turn things around and hopefully for them stay in the finals race. All right, that was the first of the four finals on the weekend, and we had a big double header on Saturday. Saturday afternoon in Launceston saw the second elimination final between the two Sydney teams, Sydney Swans playing the GWS Giants. In a short space of time for GWS, this is the third time they have played the Swans in a final. And the third time they have won. It was an absolute nail-biter, this game. Terrific game of finals football. A uh, bit of controversy, which we'll talk about. Plenty of drama at the end. And the Giants hang on to win by the narrowest possible margin. One point, the final scores. GWS, 11-8-74. Defeating Sydney, 10-13-73. The goal kickers for the Giants, Three to Toby Green, two to Sproul, two to Himmelberg, two to Hogan, singles to Taranto and Lloyd. Four to Swans, four to Isaac Heaney, three to Buddy Franklin, two to Papley and a single to Bell. Well, uh, dead level at quarter time. The Giants, no doubt their best quarter of footy was that second term when they rattled on 6-1 to the Swans, 2-2, and uh, talk about efficiency. At one stage in that second quarter, the Giants added four goals in seven minutes and, in fact, added four goals with their first four inside 50s of the quarter. So that efficiency really paid off. In contrast, the Swans, at the end, absolutely dominating territory but just could not kick straight. Two goals, seven, so costly. Bell missed a... A bit of a sitter. Buddy missed one towards the end. Tom Hickey missed one. Uh, uh, Jason McInerney bounced one towards goal, which was touched. They just could not find the go-ahead goal. In the end, the Giants hanging on finally. It was absolutely dramatic stuff. I still can't believe I'm talking about a Giants win. Hit the post, hit the post, hit the post. A metre short. Buddy couldn't get one to swing back as he normally does with his natural arc. I just can't believe they hung on. I mean, it was a great game, and I'm not saying they don't, didn't deserve the win because they certainly set it up, as you said, with that efficient use of the ball in the first half entering forward 50. But by the end, they were running in quicksand and Sydney were just pounding the ball into the forward line. And I found it hard to believe that they just could not find the goal. Bell from 20 metres out at the post. And as you say, the opportunities just came flooding their way. 
you've got to give credit to some of the uh, GWS giants who stood up in the face of what was a barrage. I thought Ash was fantastic towards the end of the game. Obviously, we'll talk about Toby Green, but he's heroics in receiving that frightful bump just near the end of the game, standing up and having the ball in his hands when the siren went was symbolic, wasn't it? So, look, they've got a midfield with the likes of Hopper and Kelly and Taranto that make them ultra-competitive. Their forward line is always dangerous. Hogan is proving somewhat of a target, but you've got Green down there. Ultimately, though, they will be sweating on the outcome of what is a very controversial moment in footy, so we may as well talk about it, Rose. Well, no doubt about the talking point. We've got to uh, elaborate on this, obviously, because it's a huge incident and it is Toby Green's being charged with intentional umpire contact against umpire Matt Stevick at the three-quarter time huddle. Uh, no doubt you've seen the footage of it and seen 100,000 different angles and replays of it. The upshot, however, is that Green has been referred directly to the tribunal, cannot accept an early plea, and uh, I guess we all wait with bated breath to see what happens. Uh, I've got my thoughts on how it should be sanctioned, if at all. Uh, how do you see it, Finey? Well, first of all, I'm pleased it's going to the tribunal, so we get sort of everybody's perspective and it can be fleshed out. Look, I've generally not been all that, um, let's just say, I'll... Let me do that again. I'll start my bit again. Three, two, one. Well, first of all, I'm happy it's going to the tribunal, row because that way we see the entire case fleshed out and I believe that there's much to be said on both sides and there will be. Personally, and I'm not always a great Toby Green fan, I think some of his defensive play when going for the ball and with ball in hand is beyond the rules and has been forgiven too much. But on this occasion... Look, I really don't think he bumped the umpire. I think he was making a point. He might have been caught up in the moment and he brushed the umpire walking into him in a very, I believe, um, non-consequential manner. And I'll say this also. It's been compared to the Lockie Neal incident. Now, Lockie Neal did intend to make contact with the umpire. I really feel as though there might have been something on Toby's mind and the last thing he was wanting to do was make contact, and it just happened incidentally. I, I lean towards him getting no weeks. Uh, I, I, okay, I respect that opinion. I certainly disagree with it, though, because I think uh, he was pretty angry, and I think there was intent there, and uh, not intent necessarily to shove the umpire, but uh, he just wasn't thinking of anything else. I'm not sure that's a good enough excuse. Every angle I've seen on it shows there was definitely contact and it. It wasn't just a, a brush. It was, uh, you know, enough contact with the shoulder there to make the umpire turn. Um, and I think if the precedents are to be followed, i.e. Lockie Neal and Tom Hawkins a couple of years back and he got a week, I think at the very least it has to be a week. I think you set a dangerous precedent Otherwise, and um, I think precedents are important if we're going to have anything like a consistent tribunal system. So, look, I'm not for a moment arguing this is 
some people have been suggesting he should get, you know, what Greg Williams got in 1997, which was nine weeks. And uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I think at the very least, it's worth a week. You just, you cannot touch umpires. However, um, obliquely or fleetingly, you can't do that. And you particularly can't come to them during a break in a game and sort of march right up to them and uh, make them sort of move off the spot they're standing in. Uh, and I think to endorse that by not giving him at least a one-game suspension is uh, sending a pretty dangerous message to not just AFL players, but players uh, across the game in general. So I think there's an important principle here. And personally, I think he should go for one week. But a lot to be played out there. And uh, no doubt you'll be hearing plenty about that. All right, let's just have a, a quick um, obituary of sorts for the Swan season finally. As you know, I tipped them to make the eight, so I'm feeling pretty happy with that. And they've probably ended up about where I tipped them. But, uh, gee, that feeling of unfulfilled promise, uh, I reckon they actually could have done some damage in this final series, just couldn't convert their opportunities. Incidentally, that last quarter, the inside 50s, 17-7. to seven and 2-7 the results. So they'll be uh, ruining those missed chances all summer. But boy, do they have a bright future because I love the kids in that side and they're still getting great value out of the veterans. Oh, yeah. I'll just have a look at that absolutely key mark taken by Errol Goulden in the dying minutes of the game in his own defensive goal square, not only for the quality of possession, but also for the amount of ground that that young man covered in a vital part of the game, and you realise how promising he is as a footballer. You know, their player management was very good all season, but to arrive in a knockout final without arguably their best player of the year, Callum Mills, Kennedy and Blakey, was pretty unlucky, wasn't it? Yeah, look, they've, uh, you know, they're really disappointing in, but uh, boy, uh, is the future bright for them and uh, they won't be budging far from the top eight for some time. I'd suggest some great young stars coming through the ranks there. So end of the line for the Swans, the Giants, as we said, front up against Geelong in a semi-final next week. Just one thing about the Swans, they must be kicking themselves about the ease at which they allowed Alir Alir to walk through the exit door. I mean, I just had a look at that team and it's almost what they need is another key backman of size, Melican and Fox, brave, but not quite filling the bill. And they had a superstar that they just allowed to walk. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, it's not a mistake they've made too often. I dare say they won't repeat it. All right, uh, absolute classic on the Saturday afternoon, but we had another final to come on Saturday evening. That one was in Adelaide. Saturday evening at the Adelaide Oval saw the playing of the first qualifying final between first and fourth on the ladder. That was Melbourne, who finished on top, taking out the minor premiership for the first time since 1964, their last premiership year, up against Brisbane who snuck into fourth spot in the last 20 seconds of their final home and away game. Could that be an entree to bigger things? Well, if it is to be, uh, it's going to have to be done via the circuitous route because they were pretty comprehensively beaten Brisbane by a super impressive-looking Melbourne. 33 points, the margin in the end. The final scores, Melbourne 13-15, 93 
defeating Brisbane 9 6 60. The goal kickers, four to Bailey Fritch. Boy, is he in good form. Two to Keziah Pickett. Two to Petrarca. The nails in the coffin in that final quarter. Singles to Brown, Sparrow, Oliver, Langdon and Spargo. And for the Lions, five to Charlie Cameron. Uh, good finals performance. He kicked six once for Adelaide. Five this time for the Lions. The rest, all singles to Bailey, Berry, McLuggage and McCarthy. Well, this game opened at a cracking pace, finding a fantastic first quarter of footy. It was so entertaining. Five goals to four, Melbourne's way. But after that, really one-way traffic. The Demons kicking four goals to one in the second term. Uh, a pretty dour third quarter. The Demons failing to add one then. Brisbane managing a couple to give themselves just a, a slim chance. But Melbourne really controlled the last quarter of this game and uh, added another four to two in the last quarter. In the end, 33 points. Perhaps that not even reflective of their dominance in play. Outstanding performances again from Oliver Petrarca midfield. The back line was beautifully held together by Weaver and May. Good small forwards, dominant midfield. They just won this game everywhere. Finding hard to find uh, too many clear winners for the Lions. Well, Park Charlie Cameron, spot on. Rowan, one word answer. Who was best on ground, Clayton Oliver or Christian Petrarca? Oh, I'd go Oliver. Yeah, interesting. I mean, oh, I, I, I marvelled at both their games. Yes, Oliver was, he was close to the old 10 out of 10 sun score. Brilliant. But I tell you what, those two goals by Petrarca, just to say, bugger off Brisbane, this game is ours, had leadership and premiership class all over it. How good was that just to say, this is ours. So you have got two brilliant midfielders in absolute premiership winning form and a great ruckman, Max Gorn. Boy, did that team look complete. Ben Brown got them out of the stalls with that beautiful bending goal to start things off, as you say, a pulsating first quarter. But you just feel, as or you felt, with Lever and May controlling the air, that they would have to really rely sort of on second efforts in that forward line. Thank goodness for Cameron being an outlet and such a good option. But it was always going to be hard once McStay was taken from the ground with that severe knock. I mean, they do need some support up there for Danaher. In fact, Danaher is sort of a wide roaming forward. They need a focal point. And McStay's been very good in recent weeks. That put them on the back burner, didn't it, Ro? It did. And uh, this has been an ongoing issue. We have, if we've had queries on Brisbane, it has been about their depth, hasn't it? Uh, you know, Hipwood, the loss of Hipwood really felt last night, uh, I reckon. And uh, it's just that sort of 24th, 25th, 26th player in the squad and the lack of them to be able to come in and play a role in an emergency. And uh, yeah, the loss of McStay proved uh, to be absolutely crucial. And I guess rubbing a bit of salt into the wound, uh, not courtesy of an opponent, but friendly fire, the knee of Nakia Cockatoo. Uh, yeah. Look, And just I on that, just on that, Rowan, you sort of look at these medical subs and I guess a, a team hopes that if they're used, it'll be like for like. So it's hard really to pick which player to make as medical sub. And we've seen actually key position players fill that role as well as midfielders, a wide range of players. But as soon as I saw 
Matheson coming on for McStay, I thought, well, that's not going to help the situation at all. And it didn't. So it's a hard thing to cover. But unfortunately, they rolled the dice there and it came up snake eyes. Yeah, I don't think Matheson was much of a barometer for them uh, in that game. <laughs> Certainly, uh, I don't think, he's, don't, think, don't think he's ever going to live that one down. Yeah. Um, well, I must say, Lockie Neal played a good game as well. He was terrific. 46 disposals, a pretty yeah. handy return yeah. in a final. Uh, I think Melbourne is as well set up uh, to win this flag as they've ever been. I mean, I, I, I don't think they're necessarily as dominant looking as other teams that have got to this stage of a final series, but there are no weaknesses for them now. The, the question mark has been the forward line and their forward line is ticking over really nicely now, 13-15. Um, so 28 scores last night uh, could have been a, a more imposing scoreline than it was. I think Ben Brown has really added something. Um, Tom McDonald's been reasonably quiet, but there's plenty of scope for his improvement. Bailey Fritch, I mean, he is almost the cornerstone of that forward line now. He's in fantastic form. Gee, he's a beautifully skilled player with great judgment. And I wouldn't underestimate the contribution of Cozzy Pickett either. The other thing I'd say about Melbourne fighting, when you're talking about the improvement from last year to this, they're what we call peripheral players have become such great contributors for them. And I'm talking about the likes of Neil Bullen, uh, Sparrow, uh, Spargo, uh, Rivers out of the back line. You know, all the players who would be considered perhaps in the bottom six or seven or eight in that lineup all actually perform a really important job. And they're getting a fantastic even contribution across that whole 22. Isn't it just, well, first of all, their availability of players is fantastic, but isn't it just seemingly uh, all? Roads have led to the finals in the perfect manner. As you say, without Tomlinson in there, they've got everybody to pick from. And they just seem to have the right mix right throughout that 22. I guess the one that took the longest to work out was Brown, Wiedemann or neither. And they certainly come up trumps with Brown because he he is an option and a different sort of option to what they've had there previously, because he covers a lot of ground. All right. Uh, well, what about Brisbane? Do we think Brisbane can bounce back? Um, you know, there tends to there is a bit of a tendency to jump off the teams that lose their qualifying finals. Um, I guess the big issue for Brisbane will be: do they host it at the Gabba, or do they end up having to play it somewhere else at this stage? Again, as we record this, uh, I don't see a reason why they couldn't be hosting it at the Gabba. Uh, pandemic permitting, and that would be a significant advantage because one big stat after this game, finally, uh, Lions haven't been great in finals, won four in finals over the last three seasons. But this year, particularly at home, I think uh, nine won at home and five, seven now away from home. So the venue will be a big factor. Yeah, that and the fact that concussion protocol means they can't consider McStay. So when you consider a forward line without Hipwood and McStay, their back's against the wall, run. All right, that was the uh, first qualifying final. That left one final to be played on the weekend on Sunday afternoon in Launceston, and it was the Bulldogs taking on the Bombers. The first week of finals wrapped up on Sunday afternoon in Launceston, a very wet and miserable 
Launceston, but not so for the Western Bulldogs because they have reversed their run of outs to win the first elimination final over Essendon in slashing style. In the end, a 49-point victory. The final scores, Western Bulldogs 13-7-85, defeating Essendon 4-12-36. Inaccurate, the Bombers, and could not manage a goal. After halftime, the goal kickers, four to Cody Waitman, three to Norton, two to Shackey, two to Hannon, singles to Vandermeer and Smith for the Bombers, two to Jake Stringer, and the only other goals, one to Smith and one to Parrish. Well, cracking contest for a half, finally. The um, the rain really came down big time after half time. That made it a real slog, and the Bulldogs, to their credit, just adapted much better. Eight goals, three to just five behinds in the second half to win going away, and you'd think that would restore a lot of confidence for their semi-final next week against Brisbane at the Gabba. Absolutely. It was a good win by them in the finish. I feel a bit for the Bombers. Uh, when the rain started in the midway through the first quarter, I have grave concerns for a midfield that has been driven by Parrish and Merritt for most of the season, coming up against the big bodies of Bontempelli, McRae, Dunkley, etc. Caldwell was a welcome addition and certainly for the first half made his presence felt. You might not want to say it, but I will. There was an arm wrestle at the start of the third quarter. Essendon had much of the ball for the first six or seven minutes and I think Waitman's third and fourth goal, or the umpire's third and fourth goal via Waitman, short-circuited any hope that Essendon had. I mean, it's easy to look at the final score and say that's a 49-point victory, but when the balls were all up in the air, I think Essendon supporters had good cause for being pretty upset at a couple of decisions. Well, I did get into a bit of trouble on Twitter for saying that finding at one stage... Uh, I think five of the first seven Bulldogs' goals came from free kicks. Uh, I'd argue a couple at least weren't there. I thought the one um, played against Sam Draper in the second quarter to Waitman was pretty softish. Um, and, yeah, the one on the boundary line, I thought that was pretty horrendous. I think that one was against Zach Merritt. That said, and apparently I do need to point this out uh, relentlessly for those who just don't want to hear uh, not for a moment suggesting that uh, played a decisive role in the outcome because the Bulldogs in the second half really did dominate. I think they sort of franked their physical superiority over the Bombers in the contested ball count. They ended up winning that by 22. Um, good numbers in the hitouts uh, too. Oh, sorry, Essendon won the hitouts, but good numbers in the clearances, 45 to 37. And the centre clearances particularly... Uh, 14 goals, seven in that particular area. And the usual suspects really stood up for the doggies today. 36 disposals for Jack McRae, 35 for Tom Liberatore. Great conditions for him. Adam Trelaw, very handy as well with 28. Bontempelli, not super influential, but 23. That proved too much of the Bombers midfield, really funny and... Uh, as has been the case most of the season, two men, Darcy Parrish and Zach Merritt, 
carrying much of the load there, 35 to Parish, 31 to Merritt. I thought uh, Jai Caldwell had a, a pretty good impact on proceedings for them early on, faded as the game went on. Um, I've got to say, though, without wanting to be hypercritical, I thought Dylan Shield had an absolute nightmare today, particularly early. And basically every time he touched the football, uh, it was a fumble or a turnover or an error. And I'm not sure what's happened to his confidence, but it was in short supply today. The other big area of uh, struggle for the Bombers was up forward. Peter Wright, not his conditions, but never really looked like he was going to be an influence. And basically no one up there to take a mark. I think it's selection. Maybe the Bombers made a bit of an error not picking McDonald, Tip and Woody. I reckon he might have been pretty handy today. Yeah, I think in the conditions he certainly would have been. Uh, if you're listening to Chris Johnson's special comments, he became fixated that no Essendon players were hitting the packet speed in the forward line. I think we heard that about 15 times, but he was right. And McDonald, Tip and Woody would have been the player to do so. Jake Stringer had a lot on his shoulders going into the game. There was plenty said pre-game about the former Bulldogs uh, coming, Bulldog coming up against his old team and in pretty good form as well. Started the game brilliantly with a goal, but not a lot from him. And I felt that Essendon really missed Nick Hind. Now, I know wet conditions aren't conducive necessarily to running the ball out of the back line, but they are conducive to putting three or four yards on your opponent and creating some space. And I felt that much vaunted Essendon back line that's been good all year was a bit rushed in putting the ball on the boot. They just were slamming it out of the back line constantly and, as a result, not really connecting with anybody farther upfield. So it was very much a case of two or three entries off the one play for the Bulldogs. And we know that repeat entries do apply a lot of pressure to a back line. I thought Draper was very good for Essendon. Looking forward to his development over the next couple of years. He's a monster and loves the loves the battle. So he really enjoyed it. And I've got to say that Tim English, who's come under a fair bit of criticism recently, whilst he didn't do a lot of ruck work, certainly found himself filling some holes and played a pretty good game reading the ball off the boot. And I've got to also say the, to me, surprise addition of Shaki into the starting 22, worked all right, didn't it? Because he kicked a couple of goals. Well, I think that'll be perhaps the most pleasing thing for Luke Beveridge heading into next week. I mean, the forward line has looked uh, impotent at times since Josh Bruce went down. But uh, Shecky, yeah, well, he earned his, earned his keep with two goals. Aaron Norton uh, didn't seem far off for much of the game and uh, clicked him the last quarter. He ended up with three and... Waitman, well, he's a real danger. I mean, yes, he might have kicked four goals and three kicks, but he was a real presence up there the whole game. And again, it looks like the Bulldogs have a, a forward setup that at least is going to cause uh, opponents a bit of planning. Um, look, it's big ask for them next week. Uh, they're at the Gabba. We know how uh, much better a side Brisbane are at the Gabba and uh, Brisbane coming off a loss on the road, of course. But... Uh, yeah, look, the Bulldogs will need to be that good, perhaps a little bit more even than they were today. It's certainly an appetising clash, though, between two teams who have clashed in finals a little bit over the years. So that'll be interesting too. Quick word on Essendon's prospects uh, for next year and beyond, Finey. Great season for the Bombers. When you consider that Ben Rutten took over a team that was pretty rudderless at the end of last year, 
I think he's got a lot out of players that you wouldn't have considered to have necessarily been certain starters. Laverde, a great year down back. Peter Wright, not his conditions today, but finished the year full of promise. We've mentioned Draper. We know this has been Parrish's best year, but probably the excitement lies in youngsters like Perkins and Jones. And, uh, gee, we've got a glimpse of Jai Caldwell today that's pretty exciting as well. So Bombers tick a lot of boxes. They wish they would have ticked that really annoying box of not having won a final for so many days. But I reckon next year they'll put that to rights. Well, it'll keep the gag riders in supply for another 12 months at least. Um, and the doggies, well, back to uh, where you were, I suppose, back in the hunt. So uh, well done to them. All right, that is the four first week finals wrapped up. Still not all low because there's one segment left in this show and I think everyone knows exactly what it is. On Footyology, the rant off. Well, plenty of fodder to work with in this segment this week, Finey. Four massive finals, uh, awards week going on in the AFL. Uh, football coverage coming left, right and centre. Any guesses what you think I'm going to go with? I'm pretty certain that the media's got a target on its back and you've got a bow and arrow ready to shoot the bullseye out of it. So, three, two, one, let them have it, mate. Very well guessed. I'm pissed off with football coverage, finally. Yep, again. And if you think this topic gets a fair old run in this segment, you'd be right. But it's a massive problem, which those who shape the coverage of the game seem completely oblivious to. Just what is it with TV networks who allegedly want to grow their audiences, yet seem to work as hard as possible to make them feel alienated at the same time? How many examples of that do you want this week? Well, it's pretty hard to go past Fox Footy's All-Australian presentation the other night for Exhibit A. Okay, so things were compromised by the pandemic, but this is still a pretty important occasion which needs a bit of gravitas attached. Not hosting Gary Ryan and Jonathan Brown, who seem determined to make it feel like a country footy club pie night. Questions to Max Gorn about having a dart on the way to training. Discussions about players' golf games. Uh, mate, or inappropriate nickname, or assumed familiarity thrown in every 30 seconds. It all hit the wrong note, in my humble opinion. And it just perpetuated the feeling we get with most AFL coverage now, that it's just some sort of big in-club where we, the humble audience, should feel privileged to be eavesdropping on this group of mates sharing exploits of their greatness around the bar. I tweeted something to that effect while it was all going on, and the response was pretty enlightening. In fact, the mentions are still rolling in. They're coming in from women who feel like they've been in this position for decades, no matter how much they love the game. They're coming in from people from ethnic backgrounds who haven't had the benefit of an upbringing schooled in this very white, very male, very entitled culture. But they're also coming in from people just like us, fighting. We've watched the game all our lives. We know it back to front. We watch and read probably more about it than a vast majority of those presenters articulate it better, yet still somehow are made to feel like outsiders. It shows up time and time again. When a player commits an on-field indiscretion, which a team of former players doing commentary work feverishly to excuse because they don't want to look like goody-goodies. When special comments people, whose job is supposed to be breaking down the more technical aspects and communicating it to the audience in terms they can understand, 
instead dress it up in all sorts of jargon because they're trying to impress their boys' club peers. When what should be commentary of the action somehow lapses into discussions about what another commentator does with his money or latest fast car or holiday house, all patting each other on the back in self-delight. Or when we hear the incessant roll call of which elite private school this player or that attended as a kid. You'd think the executives who make the decisions about who they hire and how they present their product might have an idea that society has changed a fair bit, that it's no longer the 1980s and the people into football aren't all white, middle-aged men who used to go all right on the dance floor at a tunnel nightclub. But they seem as enthralled by these heroes from decades ago as those heroes are wrapped up in themselves. They never pull them into line. They never seem to communicate to them that not everyone watching hails from the same demographic as they do. And they seem to think that a few former stars shouting over the top of each other and standing around in alpha male poses wearing acid-washed denim, speaking to some young player half their age who they barely know like he's their best mate, is actually pretty cringeworthy. I'm here to tell you guys, this stuff is really pissing off a whole lot of people who love the game, would like to watch more about it, but can't stand the insult to their intelligence routinely dished out by this cockfest of try-hard heroes. But then what would I know, Finey? Like you and like about 99% of the audience, I didn't play at the elite level. We should all just shut up, listen to these people patronisers and feel grateful we're even allowed in to listen to their alleged pearls of wisdom. Yeah, you, well, now you've got me fired up. How dare they talk above my head? What's well, not even right. above their head? It's like, uh, you know, we're having a private conversation and yeah, you're not yeah, invited. Yeah. I hate it. What are you talking about? And just while, just very quickly, I did mention it, but what is this newfangled thing about having them all stand around to give their comments? Yeah. yeah. Do you like the poses they stand in? Sort of like, all right, the three of us are standing around. We're going to take you guys on. Wow. Could they look any tougher? I'm really intimidated, even through the TV screen fighting. They're so alpha. They're so tough. Yeah. Yeah. That standing around is interesting. Oh. All right, I've had my uh, dip, and now it's your turn. I'm going to count you in now. Three, two, one, rant. Rowan, I wonder if yourself or any of the listeners are familiar with one of the worst cartoons ever made. It goes back to my childhood. It was a little black chick walking around with a half eggshell on its head. I think it came from Eastern Europe somewhere and went by the name of Calimera. Now... The only is there's only one reason to remember that program, and that's for Calimero's catch cry. It's an injustice. And unfortunately, I think we are headlong, careering headlong into a Calimero type end to season 2021. Because from what I've seen, the demons are about to break a heck of a long time off the dais. 1964. It's over half a century ago. And this current Melbourne team, bristling with stars from the midfield out, looking to have other teams covered, already in a preliminary final, with a week off to lick what wounds they have, which are very few, nearly a full list to choose from, could well win the flag. And what an injustice it would be for the many Melbourne supporters who have had to suffer through 50 years of basically Norm Smith's curse and not much else. I know we like to joke about them, that they piss off up to the snow when things get tough. 
and the MCG is only one quarter full for most of the year when they play there. But the truth is they have passionate supporters desperately in love with their club in as much proportion as the rest of the teams in the AFL. There are plenty of demons who have sat through seasons and seasons of pain amounting to decade on decade of nothing that are ready for this final shot at glory and just maybe, or just probably, a premiership. But the injustice is they're not going to be able to go there to see it. They've already missed what should have been a magnificent view at the MCG of their team winning in the first week of the finals. That was taken away from them and played in another state. And it looks as though such will be the case with the prelim and, if they're good enough, the grand final. It's just not fair. You wait this long and you don't get a chance to see your beloved Ds. So many of them are MCC members with the perfect seat and the perfect view for the perfect afternoon to make the long wait worthwhile. But it's not going to happen. So just like that little chick Calamero, they've got every right to walk around, even when the drought is broken, crying, it's an injustice. Uh, very good. I do remember that cartoon. It was pretty lame, wasn't it? Um, yeah, look, you've got to feel really sorry for him, don't you? And I know, yeah, we, we all lapse into those Melbourne stereotypes, but I've got to be honest, just about every Melbourne supporter I know is a, a hardcore footy fan without any pretense or airs and graces, and uh, they've done it tougher than anyone, and uh, they get their moment in the sun. They can't actually be there. It, um it's really sad, isn't it? And, uh, well, I think given a choice of being there and not winning it and not being there and winning it, you'd probably take the latter. But uh, gee, after a 57-year absence, uh, you sort of think you'd, you, you're going to be there to see it all uh, come to an end, don't you? It really unfair. It is really unfair. Well, on that very poignant note, we wrap up the review episode of this podcast first week of the finals cracking weekend of finals footy plenty of stories to play out during the week and uh, we'll bring you up to date with them with our second week of finals preview edition which will be recorded on Wednesday morning of course uh, we're going to keep going with footyology final siren two uh, before we go finey big shout out to our wonderful sponsors of course this podcast always proudly Brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season and always remember to gamble responsibly. And what about our other wonderful sponsors? And the best burger in town, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews Hamburgers. And a big thank you to West Point Properties, Nick Spass tells and the team for the best renos and rebuilds in inner southeastern Melbourne. And big thanks too to Stats Insider, another official footyology partner, the best sports data analysts in the business. They sample an event more than 10,000 times to bring you the best range of probable and possible outcomes. Some great writing on their site too. In fact, I'll be penning a column for them tomorrow. So look out for that one all at statsinsider.com.au. Give them a follow on Twitter when you're popping in there to abuse someone at Stats Insider. Thanks to your company, everyone. Uh, commiserations if your team has bowed out. Congratulations if they're looking good. 
And, uh, well, enjoy the footy if you're a neutral without any vested interest. It's always a good time just to enjoy footy. For footy's sake, we'll be back to bring you a healthy slice of it again midweek. We'll catch you there.